incredible, incredible experience in South Africa. And uh, if you guys are wanting to hear stories, ask the team because they will certainly uh, would certainly love to share things with you. But um, I'll just I'll just say this: God is uh, He is a powerful God that we serve. And it's a blessing to serve him. Um, And we are excited to not only share our stories with you guys, but also to hear about what God has been doing in your lives while we were gone because we know the same God that we were serving, the same power by which we were moving in South Africa was doing things here, doing things in your life. And so share your stories with us as well because we want to hear that. Um, I I just set up some papers, the syllabus at the end of the table, and I want to go over it really briefly with you for this class. So it's going to be being passed down. If you don't already have it, it'll be being passed down to you. Go ahead and listen along though, um, whether or not you have the paper, because our our grading system for each class is tweaked slightly, okay? So I want to just go over that really briefly with you so that you know what uh, is now required of you. Things are a little more concrete than they used to be for our past classes. So in order to receive credit for the courses from now and ongoing, you have to accumulate a total of eight and a half out of 12 points. So we're grading each class on a 12-point scale uh, with the exception of inductives or retreats or trips that we're going on. But each class, all these six-week classes, um, each class is worth one point each. So it's a total of six points for that. And then each homework assignment is worth a point. So that's where we get our number 12 from. If you're here and if you did your homework, guess what? Good news. You passed the class with flying colors. Um, So you have to still attend four of the six classes in person in order to qualify for course completion, but you can receive half credit for missed classes by doing two things. One is listening to the class session on SoundCloud, and then the second thing is filling out the missed class makeup worksheet, which is available on our website, influencechurch.org backslash ISOM. There's a link to that that makeup worksheet that you can find it's like one of the first things that's listed. So please note that if you miss a class, you've got to listen to it on SoundCloud and make up the assignment, the missed assignment, if you want to receive partial credit. Um, and then if you miss a homework assignment, we're going to ex- accept late homework assignments up to one week after the last class for half credit, okay? So each missed assignment can still be made up, but only up until one week after the last class session. Yeah. <laughs> we will uh yes <laughs> we will extend grace to you guys um so that's that um it, i know that there's probably some people who haven't yet signed up for the course if you haven't done that you can do that with me at the computers during the break or afterwards and if you haven't signed in to say that you're actually here and to say that you completed the homework be sure that you do that or else you're going to miss two points automatically and we would hate for you to miss that since you're here um I want us to just read and, and to, to meditate for a moment before we get started tonight. Since this is a book about being, being destined for the throne, um, I want us to take a second to, to take a look at the picture that Revelation gives us of what the throne room is like. Um, and so I'm going to read this. If you guys would close your eyes simply to, simply to eliminate distraction, but also to give your mind the space to really imagine what is being spoken here in Revelation 4. And here's what John writes. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, an appearance like an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so, Lord, we just acknowledge that as well, and we say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created, and so we cast our, our crowns, God. The ones that you've bestowed upon us as your children, we cast them at the feet of the one who deserves the glory and the power and the honor. And Lord, as we go through this book, as we go through this class, would you teach us now what it looks like to be destined for the throne, uh, that we are your children, that we are the ones who have been given your spirit, your power, your authority, that we are the, the, the manifestation of your, uh, of your church, that we, we are your church, that we walk out, that we are your example on the earth, that we are your body, that we would actually exude that. You've given us this gift and this responsibility, this, uh, this privilege to be considered your, um, your body on the earth. And so, Lord, would we, would we learn what that looks like? Would we do that well? Would we learn what it looks like to, to walk in the power and the authority that you've bestowed upon us. And so Jesus, teach us now. We are your disciples here to learn from you. Spirit of God, would you guide this time? And we just pray for strength for Pastor Phil as um, he might even be jet lagged now and exhausted. And so Lord, would you give him uh, your grace tonight to continue teaching and to speak your word. Um, Give him uh, the energy that he needs. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good to see you tonight. How's everybody? Huh? Wow, I see more alive than you, and I've been 20 hours on a plane. Seriously, give me a, give me a break, right? 
Uh, it's good to see you tonight. You know, I uh, yeah, I I really dove this afternoon from the jet lag, but uh, I'm you know I'm touched. You know how they touch off and just take back up. So I'm back in the air again. So I'm feeling good. Um, let me uh, let me just say a couple of words um, about about the trip. We're going to after the break. I think um, if any of you who were on the on the team, the mission team, if you'll just see Tammy and uh, maybe a couple of you can share before the evening is over, it would be great. We're going to have some people share on Sunday. Uh, let me just say a little bit from my perspective. I think all of us who went uh, got a lot more and a lot different than what we expected. That was the cool thing. Um, according to Jared's guys, uh, there were over 13,000 decisions for Christ in a week. So that in itself is, is pretty amazing. I do want to tell one story. I thought it was really, um, it was, we were at, uh, it was probably the second day, maybe it was the third day, I can't remember, um, and we had split up. So Jared was at one school, Tammy was at one school, I was at another school, so we're all speaking. So I was at a school, and uh, the assemblies are outside, so there were about 1,500 kids gathered outside at this one assembly, and we gave the invitation, and most of the, the kids, the students there, high school students, you know, made a decision for Christ. So he just said, if any of you would like to, for some prayer, you'd like some counseling, just stay back. And typically, you, you'll see like, you know, 75 to 100, honestly, out of a group that big. And kind of to our surprise, we had 650 kids that stayed back, which sounds really good and unless you know there's 15 of you. And that means everybody's getting 50 kids to talk to. And some of the people who had 50 kids to talk to had never been on a mission trip before, let alone counseled anyone like that. And I'll never forget uh, Rosio's daughters, you know, I think they're 17 and 18, something like that. They, um, we're just, you stand here, Brian, you stand here, here's your 50, here's your allotment, here's your 50, here's your 50, you know. And they're looking at me like, do I really get 50? And I go, yeah, what do I say? I say, tell them everything you know and trust the Spirit of God. You know, because really, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? And so there was no rooms to meet, so we, we, had, we just had groups of 50 people. You imagine 650 people out on the lawn, and you've got one, you know, 17-year-old who's going to counsel these kids. So I'm over here against the wall. I've got, uh, I've got a group. And Crystal Souza comes running over, and she goes, hey, you need to come over here and help. Uh, we've got some kids over here who are demon-possessed. What should I do? And I said, go cast the demons out and come see me when you're done. <laughs> that literally was going on all the time because there were so many kids that were possessed of demons that it wasn't like anybody had a choice. I mean, you were going to get somebody in your group that had some issue that was major league and uh, so we saw a lot of people really set free. We saw a lot of just kingdom stuff happening that was really, really good and uh, really proud of the whole team. You know, we took 31, which is a pretty big group, to take anywhere, let alone to South Africa, and hopefully you actually get back with, I think we got back with like 26 of them, something like that. No, I don't know. We got, I think we got them all back. Uh, Nathan did a great job organizing the team and getting them there and getting them back, and so we really appreciate that. I am super excited about this book. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it um, yet. 
but I I just want to implore you to jump into it. Um, the the it really is a pretty short book, um, which is kind of nice. The th- the book I originally had thought you would read if you bought it and looked at it, you probably said, "Thank God we have this book," you know, because the other one was in three volumes and and it was it's not an easy read. This, on the other hand, is a very rich read, but it's an easy read. I think you'll find. And so uh, I look forward to sharing. I've read the book. Um, I used to buy these by the case when they were cheap and give them away because they were so good. And I hadn't read it in a number of years. I went back, reread it, and I said, uh, I was reading, I was trying to work through the Spiritual Man book to try to get it ready to teach. And I said, you know, this isn't the right book. This is the right book. This is the book we need to do because it really aligns up with where we are, I believe, as a church. So with that, I, I, want to, um, I want to just pray one more time, and I want to really just invite the Spirit of God to speak to us um, uh, through his word and, and through the, the, the work of Billheimer uh, and what he's written here. Um, he's written a few other books, and I encourage you to read all of that he's written. Uh, another one called Don't Waste Your Sorrows, uh, which is such a good book. It talks about how we, we all go through sorrows, but we waste them with regret, complaining, you know, why me, you know, all the stuff that goes on in life. Instead, taking those sorrows, letting them be for the kingdom, for the glory of the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Father, as we pray, we pray right now for your spirit to fill us, to speak to us and through us, God. And may the, the truths that we find written in, uh, in this book and uh, may, may the, the scriptures that supplement and add to uh, the understanding of this, may they, may they be rich in our heart and in our mind. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation, first of all. And we're going to end uh, where I'm going to begin uh, tonight, so we will come to this point. But go to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And Revelation 19 really is that portion that just begins to build up to the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. So what I want you to do is I want you to see what's preceding this particular point. So Revelation chapter 19, and it says in in uh, verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. Now just think about what he just wrote. Here's John. He's caught up in the Spirit. He's looking at earth from heaven's perspective. And as he watches, he's watched the unfolding of this tribulation on earth. He's seen all these these strange heavenly creatures, these beasts that are described, these angelic beings. He's seen devastation on the earth on every hand. And he's probably in the spirit, he's wondering, what is all of this about? Where is all of this going? And what does all of this mean? I'm sure that he's not unlike you when you read Revelation and go, what is going on here? What does all of this mean? But And as he's watching from this perspective, all of a sudden there is, if you've ever been in those situations where you just hear water rushing down a canyon, maybe in a mountain, as it goes over those, those rocks and it's just pounding away in that sound, and then how about thunder and lightning? And all of a sudden you just imagine continual thunder and lightning, and this is what he hears. 
All he hears are these sounds just going, 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 going. And as he hears these sounds, he tells us here uh, in this, and he said, then he heard thundering saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That comes at the end of the tribulation. As, as earth is spun into chaos, the one thing that resounds above all else is that God is all-powerful and he is reigning and ruling. Can I just say that, that in your life, uh, there may be thunderings and there may be the sound of, of, of many waters and there may be all kinds of chaos ensuing, but never forget this truth. God omnipotent reigns. And then he says this, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Now the lamb is the bride, right? Or the lamb is, is Christ and the marriage is coming for the bride. And it says he has made himself, uh, has come and his wife has made herself ready. That's us. That's the church. We are made ready for this event right now. And we're going to talk about that tonight. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So how are we all clothed in white linen? Just pure before God, faultless before God, blameless before God in that day. And I tell you, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said unto me, See that you do not do that. I am a fellow servant of your, of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what's preceding all of this? All of this getting ready for this big wedding is now going to come the second coming. So what do we have? We have a marriage. We have a uh, marriage that takes place, and then we have the bride and the groom coming to earth in the second coming. We'll look at that a little bit further. Let's go ahead and just take your books. We're going to go ahead and teach through the introduction as well as teach through chapter one, which was the assignment for today. Um, I know you can read it fairly quickly. I read it uh, three times. This, this assignment read it three times this afternoon. Okay, so I know it's doable is what I'm trying to tell you. But he talks about God's eternal plan. You know, we think about the plan. When we were going through kingdom discipleship, we said that, you know, God's, you know, God's eternal kingdom plan is the establishment of his kingdom in the universe. As Bilheimer approaches this, he approaches it from this standpoint, that it is to prepare an eternal companion for the Son. That's God's eternal plan. That is that God's plan is to take you, the church, the body of Christ, collectively and get us ready for a wedding you ever watch people get ready for weddings i mean some of them start years in advance to get ready for a wedding they start collecting they're tearing things out of books they're they're looking at wedding dresses they're doing all this stuff they're getting ready and then comes that last week that push right I don't know how I'm going to get it all done is the words out of every bride's mouth even if she started years ahead Having done enough weddings, you know, you see the stress level going up. You're seeing, you know, you just wonder, will this thing really come to pass? And so all of a sudden we understand something about this preparation. We are in the preparation stage. We are in the last week getting ready for the return of Christ. That's really where we are. 
We are not in this delay like the wedding's coming in a thousand years. It's not going to be that long. If Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, I'll be surprised. There's so much that's pointing that has never pointed to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And the church must make herself ready. And it's Bilheimer's contention that prayer is the way that God shapes us and shapes our universe and gets us ready for that. So God's intent is that he will share the throne with his bride, you. Now think about that thought. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 says, To him who overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne. It's almost too much to comprehend. Because we don't see ourselves like that. We see ourselves more as worshipers before the throne versus reigning and ruling on the throne with Christ. And yet, as the queen ruling with the king, it makes sense. It's going to make more sense as we study this. So, our role requires what? It requires this it requires that we're trained, that we're educated, that we are prepared. That we engage in spiritual warfare. It requires that we learn how to be an overcomer and not be overcome. You see, the church too often is overcome. How many times have you heard Christians, I don't know what I'm going to do? Why is that coming out of our mouth? When all power and authority is given to us in Christ, why is that coming out of our mouth? Why are we depressed? Why is that coming out of our life? We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why are we discouraged? Why is that coming out of our life? We have Christ, the hope of glory. Why is all of this happening? It is because we have not taken up our our real understanding of what it means to be the bride of Christ, a son and daughter of the living God. We just neglected it. We've decided rather to act more like a harlot bride. To act more like a bride who doesn't want to get married. Who doesn't want to prepare. Who doesn't want to do what's necessary in the kingdom. We've chosen to live this life of apathy, making Christianity a hobby versus the passion of our heart. What if we really believed what we read in this book? What if we really believed that we were being shaped to be reign with Christ through all eternity? How would, it, how would the days look different? How would our life look different? What, what would we think about if you knew today was preparation day and tomorrow was the wedding? How, how would it look different? I think for all of us, we'd say it would look different. I mean, forget about this idea, well, you know, I know I'd clean up my act, I wouldn't do that. That shouldn't even be a part of your life. What you should be saying is, what I would do is this. If I knew, well, we don't know. He could come tomorrow. Amen? See, that's what the word imminent return of Christ means. He could come now, anytime, right now, right now. So it requires something. It requires a process of believing prayer. Billheimer says that prayer is on-the-job training. Now think about that. 
What if prayer was not about you getting what you wanted? What if it was training you for your eternal role? Would that make you look at prayer differently? What if prayer was not a means to an end, but prayer was engagement with the Father? And that was enough. What if prayer was training you up for an eternal role in the kingdom of God? What if you had a responsibility in another kingdom? And I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying, what if? How would it look different? The world is a lab for those who are destined for the throne, Bilheimer says. This is a laboratory. It's not real life. Real life is eternity. We look not to the things which are seen, for they're temporal. We look to the things which are unseen, for they are what? Eternal. What if this world is a lab to get you ready for eternity? You see, it's prayer that produces an overcomer. When we were in South Africa, I met with uh, uh, a guy named Charlie who um, Jared describes as his best friend. And I sat down with him, and he said, you're going to love this guy because he's a, he's a land developer. He's a very successful man, uh, but he spends three hours every day in prayer. And he said, and when he gets done praying, he never answers his phone. When he gets done praying, he's got all these calls. Hey, Charlie, call me. What are we going to do? We got this. We got this. We got this. He never, he never responds. He never picks up the phone. He puts the three hours in. So I was really curious to see what I was going to get when I met Charlie. And here's this guy who used to be a tennis pro who somehow found his way into this world of land development. And uh, we began to talk about land. We began to talk about what God was doing. We began to talk about the land down here, the hill. And and he said, do you have uh, a group of people who are dedicated to pray for that and that only, nothing else? Interesting perspective. He said, if you get such a group, could I be on it? He said, you know, in the kingdom, one thing goes wrong in the way you pray, and you can miss out on what God's up to. I thought that was an interesting perspective. You miss one thing, and you miss out on what God's up to. He said, I would get five or six or however many people you want and say, we don't want you to pray about anybody who's sick. We don't want you to pray about the church. We don't you pray about anything. You can do that on your own time, but what we want you to do is focus on one thing. Just one thing. Just one thing. Nothing else. Kind of an interesting thought, and let me be a part of it. He said, I found that there's nothing that I can accomplish apart from prayer. He said, I have zero training to be a land developer, and he's one of the most successful ones in South Africa. I have no training. I was a tennis player. He said, in prayer, it was what God led me into that. God gave me the skills in prayer. Now, that almost sounds too crazy to be true. Doesn't it? I mean, I'm thinking, you think I'm going to go pray and I'm going to be a land developer? You know, I don't even think that way. Eternal standing. Think about this. The church has an eternal standing that's greater than the angels. Let's just uh, take our Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. 
Now, the context here is that Paul's writing to Corinth because they've got people within the body and they can't resolve their own problems, so they're thinking, well, let's just go to court and let's sue one another and we'll get it settled that way. And so Paul is saying, do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In other words, if you can't figure out how to do something right and discern good from evil in this life, how are you going to judge the world in the life to come? So understand what he's doing is he's, he's, he's trying to illustrate something by contrast. He says, guys, do you know? He's not trying to really teach you about judging the world. He's trying to say, you will. Now, how are you going to deal with it? And then look at verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If it is your responsibility one day to judge the unsaved world, and if it is your responsibility one day to judge the fallen angels, how are you going to prepare for that? How do you get ready for that assignment? Billheimer says prayer is the way you get ready for that assignment. Believers, we have an eternal standing as because we are redeemed. Do you realize that no, no other creature, no other living being in all of God's creation are redeemed? In other words, angels have never been redeemed. They've never been bought back from sin. They've never been saved, born again, redeemed. Do you realize you are the only creature in the universe that God made that is redeemed? So curious is this matter of redemption that the Bible says in Peter that angels long to look and to understand the grace of God. How does that work? How do, angels cannot comprehend it because they've never been redeemed. Then, do you realize we're the only ones created in the image of God? I don't know who it was, whether it was on our team or whether it was on Jared's team, but they, they made a comment, something like to this effect, that um, they asked the question, do you think God is ugly? And these kids in, in South Africa said, no, no, God is not ugly. Well, you were made in his image. Why do you see yourself that way? It was such a just a precious little you know, bridge into understanding something about you were made in the image of God. You may not like the way you look. You may wish you would look some way different, but you were still created in the image of God. You know, I marvel at how everybody can look different, don't you? I mean, I really, really do. I mean, it's serious stuff for me. It, you may just nod and go, yeah, I do too. No, it's serious to me. I love to just sit and watch. I love to go to the mall and watch. And I'm watching people not because, you know, for the big picture, I'm thinking, how is it possible with a, just a few body parts to make everybody look so different? They do. I mean, you just ears and eyes and nose, and, and they all look different. And I just wonder if somehow, now what? No, hold on to me with, with this one. This is a thought. If the composition the collective composition of every person on earth somehow reflects the image of God. 
that we are just a small facet of a great composition, a great tapestry that reflects God. And that in some way, you and you and you and every one of you, somehow you reflect a dimension of who he is. And collectively, there's something that happens when we come together and we begin to see this massive humanity before the the throne. Let's talk about our legal standing. It was established at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That gave us power. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, here's what it says in Romans 6. It says, you know, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who have died unto sin still live therein? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into his death were baptized also into his, ready, resurrection? So we can walk in newness of life. What, what did resurrection give you? It gave you power. Now, his ascension gave us something else. So I want you to, it gave us position. And this is really important. Go over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I remember one time I got a card from somebody in college and it said, keep looking down. It's kind of a depressing card, isn't it? Keep looking down. And then I opened it up and it said, you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we call a positional truth. The way that God sees you is from heaven looking downward. Have you ever read Paul and then read James and you, they seemed like they were, James was, you know, he was just in a whole other field and Paul was in another field and they, they didn't even seem to kind of relate? Let me tell you what's going on with those two. Paul writes his letters from heaven downward. James writes them from earth upward. Paul's writing about the grace of God. James says, and, and the faith in that, and James is looking and says, if you don't have stuff going on that works in your life, you don't have faith in God. They're both saying the same thing. They're just looking at it from different angles. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, and let's look together uh, in verses uh, 5 through 7, or verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us uh, alive together with Christ, for by grace have you been saved. Now, here it is, positional truth. Ready? And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He raised us up, why? So he could show in eternity his, the exceeding greatness of the riches of his grace toward us. So that is our positional truth. So our legal standing is we have power because of the resurrection, because of the ascension, we have position in Christ. Now, why is that important? Because Christ was raised up above all principalities and powers, above every name that is ever named in this age or in the age to come, and we are seated with him. Therefore, you are legally raised up above all principalities and powers. Your standing is there. That's why when you don't have to fear the demonic, you don't have to fear Satan, you don't have to any of that because you already have authority and power over the enemy. I use the illustration of uh, we were in a town and there was some uh, there was a policeman a light was out and the policeman was out there directing traffic, you know so he would stop the cars like this and they would stop and then he would tell the cars uh, going this way to, you know that it was okay for him to go 
Well, what did he have? When he held up his hand, he had authority, right? He, he re- wore, re- he wore a, a, a uniform as a policeman. He said, I have authority. But he also had power. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to call for reinforcements. I'm going to do something. I've got power as well as authority. Do you realize when you do this to Satan, you have authority and you can call on God for power? You see, you're, you're in the same position. What we do is we go, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, that, you know I, I'm just under, under, the devil is just oppressing me. Well, get out of it. Stop. In Jesus' name. You don't have to let anything overtake you. Amen? You are more than a conqueror. You know what, you know what it means to be more than a conqueror? That means you don't even have to fight in the battle. You got to win the victory. You don't even have to go to the battlefield. He went there for you. That's pretty good news. We also have a unique standing. You know what our unique standing is? It is this, that we are the only force on earth that is contending Satan's rule. No one else is trying to stop what Satan is doing in our world. I mean, we see the craziness in the Middle East with ISIS, right? And it's like nobody's even thinking about doing anything. We talk a little about it, but I'm thinking there's got to be more solution to this. I wonder if God's saying, I know it's going on. It will not be stopped by military force. You can see what happened in the Middle East. We gave a lot of money. We put a lot of men. We lost a lot of good soldiers, men and women, in the Middle East. And it's still going on because it's not about might. It's about my spirit, says the Lord. When is the church going to realize it is our responsibility to stop ISIS? When is that going to happen? There's an interesting story. I'm not sure I'll get all the details right, but at the Bible College of Wales during World War II, um, uh, Reese Howells felt really impressed to pray. There was a battle in North Africa that was, that was very, the, the, the Allied forces were, were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, you know, like 10 to 1. And in, if you're in desert warfare, you require, the main thing you require to fight desert warfare is water. That is the one thing you require above all others. And there was a situation that, that had came out, and, and, and Reese Howell said he just felt like God wanted us to pray. He wanted us to really pray. And, uh, and as they began to pray, um, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know anything about the battle plan. They didn't know what was going on with Rommel. They didn't know what was going on in North Africa. And as they began to pray, really began to pray, God began to move and do some things that were out of the ordinary. And apparently what happened was the, the Germans had captured the water line that the British had built, and the British had just built it, and so what they decided to do, they didn't want to waste any water, so they ran salt water through it to test it and make sure it didn't have any leaks. At just the right time, the Germans captured the water line. They took from the water, they found out it was salty, and they abandoned it altogether because they thought it was just the enemy had done that to pollute the system. So they abandoned that, only to find out later they got out into a battle. They were without water, and they were easily defeated by the British forces. Now, what was interesting about that was not that that happened. What was interesting that happened about that was 
It was the exact minute when the reports came back that Reese Howells said, God wants us to pray for a campaign in Northern Africa. God needs to turn the tide. And you might say, well, that's a coincidence. If you don't believe in prayer, you believe in coincidences. You can believe in one or the other. You either believe in prayer or coincidence. You can't believe in both. What if God wants a church to rise up and say, your training for eternity is to stop ISIS? That give you enough to pray about? You ever had those times where you're praying, I don't even know what else to pray. I've prayed about everything. Okay, pray until ISIS is defeated. How does that feel? See, do we really believe that prayer does anything? Or is prayer just therapeutic? I feel better when I pray. Or how about prayers like an Easter egg hunt? You know, the Easter egg hunt, you know, you turn all the kids loose, they come back, how many eggs did you get? 20, oh, we hit 28, you send them back out again. I think a lot of people assume that prayer is kind of like that. It's like God has hit all the Easter eggs out there, and, and he says, okay, kids, go find them, and if you find them, you found the will of God. And then you get to keep it and get to enjoy the egg. Look, I got the egg. The father hid it in a convenient place for me. What if God said something like this? I didn't hide any eggs. I wanted you to look at this world and say, what needs to be done in prayer to change the world? What if it was a whole different scenario? Does that change prayer? See, if all prayer is is me discovering what God is going to do anyway, then I'm not super motivated. If prayer moves the hand of God and changes human history, I'm excited about prayer. And I believe that's what prayer is all about. Also, we, have the, uh, we are the only pure, uh, preserving and purifying force on the earth. Does it look like government is trying to preserve or purify society? Matthew chapter 5 says we are the salt and the light of the earth. Prayer provides the balance of power against evil. Who's going to counterbalance evil in our world except for the church and the prayers of the saints? Who's going to do that? Well, you know, the world's coming to an end, and, and you, know, we just, uh, you know, we just can't wait till the, the return of Christ. But that's not, the, that's not a kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective is we don't know when he's coming back. We should do everything we can to stop evil and lift up the name of Jesus and see as many people saved as we possibly can. Amen? Isn't that supposed to be our perspective? God honors prayer to the degree that if you don't pray, he lets evil triumph in the land. See, God so honors prayer, he says, this is my way, you don't want to choose it, then I'll just, just let evil run loose in your, in your streets. But you take responsibility because you as the church are going to rule and reign, and who's going to take responsibility? Prayer enforces Christ's victory over Satan. Have you ever noticed when you, when you don't pray how you feel and then when you do pray how you feel, how it's different? What's different? I mean, it's, it's the difference is I feel empowered. I feel like I can. I feel like God will. You ever prayed crazy prayers? Prayers that you go, God, I don't even know, I don't even know how you're going to answer this prayer. You know, I've got this little expression I use in my head, I, two of them. One of them is I'm pushing all the chips in the center of the table. Now, for the poker players among us, you know what I'm talking about. 
right? I'm all in, God. If I lose, I'm losing big. But if I win, I'm winning big, God. I'm pushing everything into the center of the table when it comes to faith. And if I show up being a fool for it, then so be it. But I would rather be a fool for Christ's sake because I trusted God for too big. And I remind God often, not that he need, he's forgotten. I need to remind I need to say something like this to him, and I do often. God, I'm doing what you told me to do. You said, whatsoever things you ask, believe that you shall receive them and they shall be yours. God, you said it. I didn't say it. Are you going to do what you said or not? I'm just putting you on the spot, God. God, if you want to stop my praying, you can stop it at any time. If you want to correct my incorrect praying, you can correct it any time you want. But, God, I'm pushing everything to the center of the table, and I'm trusting God. Sometimes I use this expression. I say, God, I'm throwing the dice, and I'm expecting seven. I only do it as a memory aid to me because, man, when those dice go out of your hand, you cannot control them, right? Now, some of you have only played Monopoly with dice, you know, and that's where you draw the line. Everything else is sinful but Monopoly, right? Well, I've never seen people get madder than any other game in Monopoly. Have you? I mean, people that, like, lose everything, you know, the little red house or green house and red hotel, whatever it is, right? Go crazy over those things. But you, the minute those dice go to your hand, you know that somehow it's going to end up where it's going to end up. When you release your faith, what you're saying really is, God, everything I've banked my life on, everything I'm trusting you for, Everything I want to see you do, God, is all in your hands now. It's out of mine. As long as I do this, you know, you ever watch people? I don't ever knew what that did. What is that blowing on? Does that help? I mean, does that change the condition of the dice, warm them up, get them ready for seven? I don't know what it does, right? But, man, you'll see them. They'll knock it on the table. They'll hit it on their head. They'll do everything, you know. They'll get it up here. They'll listen. They'll talk to it, right? Right? They're doing all this stuff. Why? Because they're trying to manipulate the situation and get it in their favor. But bam, when they go out of their hand, it's win or lose. Here's what I believe. I believe that when we fully release faith, we win. And we see what God we see the things that God wants to do. Um let's give me let me give you a little bit more. Prayer implements God's will on earth. What if God's will is determined by the way that you pray? You ever heard people, well, I guess it wasn't God's will. Have you, ever, you ever said that? You know, you prayed, you know, you gave it, you kind of tipped your hat at prayer, and you said, God, I'm going to pray about this. Tipped your hat at prayer, and then it didn't happen. So you, you make yourself feel good because you say, well, I guess it wasn't the will of God. What about this as a response? Maybe I didn't pray with persistence. Don't you love that Luke 11 passage, you know, where he goes to midnight, he's knocking on the door. Remember that story? What do you want? Bread? Go away. All the kids are asleep. Would you leave me alone?
enough. How much bread do you want? I start praying. God says he's not serious. He's still not serious. I think you're serious. I'd like to answer your prayer. The great problem with the children of God is they give up. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. I want to move mountains. I can't do it with two taps on this microphone. I want to change the course of history. I can't do it with two taps on this microphone. Luke 18. It illustrates prayer. And I love the way God twists these things for us. It's an unrighteous judge. And its analogy is to God. If this is what an unrighteous judge will do, think what a righteous judge will do. And here's what the unrighteous judge says. He does not care about the woman. He does not care about the request. He does not care about the son in the bad way. He said, I will answer her because she will wear me out. Now watch where I go with this. There's some things you pray about God doesn't care about. He doesn't care if you get it or not. Because it's not about stuff to him. What he cares about is, will you persevere? Will you stick to that fight of prayer until the answer comes? Because I'm not, I'm not concerned whether you get the stuff you want here. I'm really concerned about training you up for eternity. And if you don't learn this principle here, you're not going to be able to really do what I want you to do in eternity. So the stuff doesn't matter to me. I mean, think about it. When Solomon was coming into power, he asked for one thing, didn't he? Wisdom. That's all he asked for. Just give me wisdom. God showed how much he didn't care about stuff. He said, I'll just make you the richest man in the world. Because you want wisdom, you'll know what to do with it. He didn't care. Why? Don't you think God really cares about me getting a close parking place at, at the mall? No, I really don't. Well, every time I pray, I get one. Then good. Pray for bigger stuff. Pray for the, the he'll give you them all. <laughs> then you can get your own sign. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, why do we limit ourselves to, to little things like getting a close parking place when we really all need to walk anyway? Prayer and praise are the key. They go together in Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? They just go hand in hand in Scripture. Okay, that's the introduction, and it's 736. Let me give you one more thought. Let me just jump you into chapter one. We're going to take a quick break. Okay, let's think about history, and there, there, there are three major views to history. Okay, one view of history is what's called the inevitable progress view, and it kind of goes like this. History gets better, 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 better. Okay? That worked pretty well in America until uh, really the Great Depression. And then the Great Depression came and said, well, you know, let's get us back on track. 
you know, and then all of a sudden here comes World War II. And everybody said, you know what, maybe society isn't getting better. Then there's another view that, that, that history is just secular or secular, right? It's kind of like the, the, the view of Hinduism. You know, just all, everything goes around in circles. You ever heard this saying, history repeats itself? I know it doesn't. Dumb people repeat dumb things. That's really what happens. History is not like this. Okay? It doesn't go like this. History, according to the Bible, goes like this. It has a starting point, and it reaches a culmination, and it's over. That's the biblical view. God created time. He's going to end time. God has a plan for everything that's going. Now, what is the centerpiece for history from a biblical perspective? It's Calvary. Because it's out of Calvary. What did, what did, what did Jesus birth out of the cross? He birthed the church. You see, when he died, what, did he, what came forth from that was the church. It was the bride. He died to establish people who were redeemed, who would love him, who would reign with him in eternity. When his side was pierced and the blood and the water came out, he was establishing the church. That's why when you hear people say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, do I? I always respond honestly, no, you don't. But why wouldn't you want to do something that cost Jesus so much? Why wouldn't you want to participate in the body of Christ because it cost Jesus so much? It cost him his life. Well, I don't really think I need it. Well, maybe somebody needs you. Maybe you're an essential part that you don't realize. So, Colossians chapter 1, let's just go here real quick. Colossians chapter 1, I love looking out there and seeing some of you who've been on the mission trip, and I know you're dying right now. You're going, oh, my gosh, why did I sign up for this class? I'm so tired. Okay, uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Am I excited enough to, to keep you awake or not? All right, just tell me that even if you're lying to me. Okay, verse 16, for by him, who's, by, who's the him? Say it out loud. What, who? By Christ, all things were created in heaven that are and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Is that pretty all-encompassing? He's before everything. He holds everything together. Um, all is for him, everything else. Now look what it says here in verse, 17, uh, verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So he puts the church right in the middle of all of this, all things. So he is before all things. He created all things, he tells us. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, now watch this. He's before all things. He created all things. He holds all things up by the word of his power. And guess what? And he has given you all power and authority as the church. He said, here, you ever had anything delegated to you? Why don't you go do this? You ever had anything delegated to you and you didn't do it? Probably all have, right? Would you go do this? Oh, I forgot. Right? Oh, I didn't get it quite done. You know, I'm going to get right on it. He has delegated to us power and authority, the power and authority that 
enabled him to create the world, hold all things together, and uphold all things by the word of his power. That's you, what you have. Every event in history transpires to serve God's plan and purpose. Even the stuff you don't like. Now, whether you like our current president or not, or don't like him, doesn't matter to me. Whether he's doing a good job right now or not doing a good job right now is not even debatable. Not even worth talking about. It's not the point. The point is God can take a good president or a bad president and does all the time in order to work out his divine purpose. And you may not like it. And you may say, man, I wish we'd have got more people out to vote. You still think it's about you? You really think it's about you? You don't think God sometimes gives us what we don't pray about? God says, you want a good president, you should have prayed harder. You want a different president, you should have prayed harder. You want righteousness to prevail in the land, you should pray harder. Why is it we think we're so powerless? We get in our little holy huddles. We're all scared. Let's just pray. There's evil in the land. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? You know, we're little scared rabbits. I hope they don't close our church. Hope they don't tax our church. What are we going to do? God's going, are you kidding me? Bunch of losers. That's kind of what he said to the disciples, right? They, they come over. They got the boy. They can't cast the demon out of the boy. They bring the boy to me. He says, you faithless generation, how long do I have to hang around? Can I ever go home? I want to go home. Bring the boy to me. Cast out the demon of the little boy. Disciples come over quietly. How, um, how, how come we couldn't do that? What's the problem here? He says, this kind here only comes out by prayer and fasting. You know, if Jesus says to me in an audible voice, how long do I got to hang out with you, you faithless generation? I'm going to remember that talk. I'm going to remember that talk. Yeah, Ted. Well, it makes it even more guilty. It makes us even more guilty. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think where the real gap comes is we just don't do anything. I think that's where it comes because we we either afraid we're not going to pull it off. You know, have you ever been in a prayer meeting like this one? Dear Lord, we just want to pray if it be your will that such and such, you know, I mean, imagine if you're sick, somebody's praying like this for you. Oh, God, I just pray that you're going to make them feel better. You know, and if they don't live, God, I just pray there'll be a strong testimony at the hospital. Have you ever heard a prayer like, I've heard prayers like that my whole life. I'm thinking, if I get sick, I'm not calling that guy. 
right? I, I don't want to be a good testimony before I die. I, I, I want to live. Bring me a guy that can pray, pray me in life. Amen? I mean, that, that isn't that our mandate. Even, even if the guy doesn't have enough faith, I want him to act like he does. Right? I don't want to feel comfortable as I'm sick and dying. I want a guy to breathe fire. I want his eyes to be beads of, of Holy Spirit generated power. I want him to look at me. You're going to be well in Jesus' name. Get up out of that bed. That's what I want to hear. Amen? I mean, that's what we want here. Let's take a break, okay? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, what do you want? Do you want to be healed or not healed? Yeah, I mean, just get everything down to the basic, simple kind of stuff. Do you want to be healed or not healed? There was a guy that was begging. The apostles came by. They wanted, he wanted pennies. Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But what I give you in the name of Jesus, what I, what I give you, stand up and walk. See, he didn't know he could ask for legs. So he settled for pennies. You get to choose. Well, what if somebody, what if we pray over somebody and somebody, you know, doesn't live? I don't know. That's God's problem. That ain't my problem. He's the one that told me to heal the sick. He's the one that told me to speak faith. He's the one that told me to move mountains. If he doesn't do his job, then that's his issue. That's not my issue. I, my job is only to do what he's called me to do, say what he's called me to say, and not try to get him out of a bind by saying, well, if just I guess it wasn't his will. I'm not going to get God out of a bind. He can get himself out of a bind. He is a big God. Amen? Amen. Let's stop bailing. Stop trying to bail God out. Worrying about his reputation. He can handle it. He's got. He's. He can handle the reputation issues. You know. I mean, think how many times the Old Testament. God, if you don't come through, they would say. You know, what will the people around say? God's going. Like I'm really caring. They hate me anyway. I'm not worried about that. Go, Moses comes to the, to the Red Sea. I'm going to close, I really am going to close with this, and hands are going to go up, and I'm going to ignore them. But <laughs> Moses goes up to the Red Sea. They've already seen 10 plagues. God's doing all this cool stuff, right? And all this people, what do the people start doing? Oh, God, what are we going to do, Moses? You brought us out here. The flesh pots of Egypt were great. Making bricks was wonderful. We loved all that love. You know, we loved being slaves and working until our, our fingers were, you know, falling off of our hands. Oh, God, I can't Moses, you know. And so Moses going, ah, you know, he goes over to God, God, you know, what, what's going on? And he says, quit whining, basically. Tell the people to go forward. I already told you the miracle was there. 
Why are you standing on the bank listening to the whiners? Why are you there? Tell them to go forward. I think what God is telling go forward. You already got everything you need. What are you waiting for? Go forward. Go take a break. Go to the bathroom, all right? <laughs>